I was sporty, but not interested in sports. I was creative, but like I, I wasn't necessarily an artist in that sense. I did a lot of stuff. I played instruments. I played at least three. I did swimming all the time. Like when I say I did so much stuff, I did martial arts, I did swimming, I did art, I did music, I did drama, I did dance, I did singing, I did all of these things. I did everything, all of that. I played basketball, I played football, I played rugby, I played, I did, I swam, I did martial arts. I did all of the things that you would expect a typical, boy, done that. A, a typical boy, yeah. as young man, to do. I was very physical, like, growing up. I was also very, very, I want to say cerebral, but I used my mind a lot. I was very much thinking and writing and things like that. But again, it just kind of, for me, it was just a matter of just changing what a man could be, specifically a black man. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership and as you can see if you're watching this uh, on YouTube this is slightly different. I'm actually in a studio, you know, once in a while I tend to do it and this man got me on my yard. <laughs> Maybe come all the way down to West London um, to actually make this happen but I have um, mental health consultant, uh, trainer, author of the one book wonderful book time to talk how men think about love belonging and connection um which if you haven't got it go and get that for sure award-winning podcaster in his own right and just today you know we're flipping this script we're having him on, on the end of it i have alex holmes in the building how are you doing sir i'm good i'm good so i didn't bring you nowhere right. number one <laughs> yeah you could have told me anywhere to arrive and i would have come but it just happened that it was very local to me so we have to you know thank god for convenience and efficiency um but yeah no i'm good man i'm good thank you for having me on the show um how are you i i'm looking forward to this you know it's not like for the last number of years and when we talk about mental health he is one of those this go-to person he's someone who's very leonard and i want to delve into some of that experience but before we do Something I always like to do is understand who the person is. Like, why? Why are you curious about the subjects and the things that you talk about and what you do? So, let's go back to younger, younger, younger Alex. Actually, I want to go back to I want to go to six. I'm saying six and ten, Alex. Six and ten. Yeah, let's go way back. Ah, oh, my days. This reminds me of when I had to do some inner child work with my therapist, and she was like, "Okay, so let's go back to." The age of six. <laughs> no, he's like, what age do you think that, you know, it all changed for you? And I was like, no, He's like, let's go to six. And I was like, why six? Like, um, and it's funny because I do that with my clients too. Um, now, but um, six, yeah, a happy-go-lucky child. Pretty much very curious, always in in people's business, but not in people's business, do you know? That like, was strange though, yeah, okay, I yeah, see that. You know, I, I, know things, I know things I shouldn't be knowing, but I've been knowing them, do you know what I'm saying? Loved writing, loved reading. Um, I was into books from a very early age. Was that how? Like, was it your parents? Or was no, it not, I was just left to my own devices. And I had a conversation with my dad about this yesterday, about imagination. 
and he was talking about his imagination led him to tech and kind of like how things work and all that stuff um and i was like to him well mine kind of led me to words the written word communication that sort of thing so i remember like one of my earliest things was i had this um these this book and it had it was like teddy bears in it but it was like french and english and i was learning and it's like i don't know what it was but i was just very interested in french and english from an early age um and i remember just sitting there reading i had no idea i was like oh so this is red so this must mean red in this yeah. and then this is t-shirt in english and this must be t-shirt in that. and i was I remember doing that by myself and i don't remember ever having somebody sit there and be like this is french do that i was just kind of like sitting there with the books myself and mm. learning all of that so um yeah so between six and ten i was just very much just like writing stories i remember finding a digital typewriter i have no idea thing is i wish i could go back and actually figure out the origins of where all these things come from but when you're just a child and you see things appear you don't question where they come from well i didn't but you don't question where they come from they just arrive magically and i and i found this digital typewriter and it's like you could kind of it was obviously a typewriter but it was yeah you could write down and it comes up on the screen and then it'll print off as it goes and i just used to be like oh this is really really cool and i used to write little stories on there have my little journal have my little books and things like that so yeah i mean that's pretty much kind of where it all began my mind stuff i was very introverted anyway not antisocial, just introverted i was just very much just like i would i'm happy with my own company i'm cool to sit where i need to be and just focus on what i'm doing and then yeah and then that pretty much shifted a lot when my aunt died when I was 10 and um, I uh, there was a huge life change that happened because my mom's older sister and as part of that change we took in my cousins as part of that so then the family just expanded and the space that I had for myself was no longer that it was very much kind of mixed in with a lot of grief family a lot of stuff that's going on I then all of a sudden I, I was always the eldest but I got elevated to house key <laughs> phone all these different things 10 11 responsible for kind of walking siblings to school and picking siblings up and all this different stuff so the sense of responsibility then came and a lot of the childlike curiosity was kind of massaged out of me in a sense massaged pushed out or whatever um, it's just circumstances around you. It's just the just the nature of how things just have to speed up. I had a child just need to stop on my bed like this is just what has to happen. Um and uh yeah. Because I was looking at it and I always think to myself, what was my childhood like? And I sit down with my cousin sometimes and we had this conversation and it was like it all it all seems to be okay until we were ten and nine and then it just kind of went all over the gaff. But that tends to happen with kids based on kind of the training I'm doing now and the studies and whatnot, it tends to happen. Like there's usually a quite a big shift in environment and personality that happens from around nine to 10. And it just happens like, whether that be a divorce or a loss or a, a catastrophic event. There's a lot of data around the yeah. commonality of that happening. Yeah, it tends to, I don't, and I don't know why that is. I don't know what that is but I'm still trying to figure that out. But it's like there's a particular age where things start to shift. And sometimes it's a big shift. Sometimes it's just a kind of a mild shift, but it's a shift nonetheless. And it um, 
yeah, and it can be traumatic for a lot of people. Are there times when that shift also, like you said, for you, that curiosity that you had, that time and space that you had kind of went away for a period of time at least, but it seems like you still kind of held on to some of that because with what you do now in particular with the writing that you do even over the years of being a journalist which Alex has been in the past and even the curiosity you have for the insatiable nature of reading books and really understanding stuff even studying French at uni mm-hmm. like all those things and that you had there. when you were younger is that you kind of rediscovered it so how did you get back into still holding on to some molecule of that I don't know I guess it was a lifeline I suppose um, it was one of those things where it was the only thing that I could have, like, I was 40, but not interested in sports. I was creative, but like, I I wasn't necessarily an artist in that sense. Like I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't somebody who, I painted and I drew, I sketched, I did a lot of stuff. I played instruments, I played at least three. I did swimming all the time. Like when I say I did so much stuff, I did martial arts, I did swimming, I did art, I did music, I did drama, I did dance, I did singing, I did all of these things. I did everything, all of that. I think that the one thing that kind of like really held everything together was just that kind of searching for that story or kind of really kind of honing in on that. I don't know, and that was the one thing that really kept me grounded, actually. Mm Because I remember when I was in year six so that's probably what year what age 10 11 going into no not even that it was actually 11 and i remember reading um into the looking glass by lewis carroll the alice in wonderland i want to say sequel but um and i remember sitting there reading that and it was just i was just like drawn in by all of these characters and all of this stuff but i didn't think it was necessarily strange for me to be doing that at 11 um, you know, really not wanting to do the chores because I want to read instead. And that's not necessarily typical for a lot of boys. It's like, I don't want to do the chores because I want to go and play PlayStation or do something else completely counter to that. But I was just very focused on wanting to be caught up in the story. And whether that be Harry Potter, whether that be the Darren Shan Vampire's Assistant books or whatever, I was just, it was the books that grounded me. And it was stories that grounded me. And so that was one of the big things that really kept me kept me going. And I think a lot of the stuff and a lot of the work I do now is all about people's stories and about how we kind of, what we learn, how we learn it, and kind of what that means for our life as we try to move forward in it and how we have to keep rewriting things and editing and putting stuff out there, trying stuff, you know? Which ain't easy. Like, it's not it's easy. It's not easy. And it's even painful the... stuff. The unraveling process, like you said, it, it's very painful. Even taking the time to be like, where is this come from? Is it childhood that happened at 11? Is it something else that happened in my lifetime? What is it about me? And when I think about, in particular, the work you do around men, I find it quite interesting when you're talking about some of your teenage years, because you're tall. And naturally, if you, when people look at you, they'll probably think, like, athlete, like stereotypes, all that kind of stuff will easily kind of come at you. Yeah. And then what you talk about is very, very different. So you can even take people off guard. Did you find that stereotype being there as you were navigator as a teenager while having all this interest in the, I want to say the, the weird, the wonderful, the intriguing, the stories, all of that kind of stuff. And how was you navigating that? How has that helped shape some of how you understand men and the young men that you work with in particular? 
I think what they taught me was that men can be different to what you expect them to be, generally, because ultimately, I was just not that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I keep having these conversations, and I keep having these conversations with men, um, and it's just so funny because men would be chatting to me and be saying things, and I'd be like, "But why? This does not. This is, this is this. like so. Okay, so that's what happens. So what next? Like, what are we doing?" And it's like, and but it's weird because I said I did all of those things. Mm-hmm. I did. I played basketball. I played football. I played rugby. I played. I did. I swam. I did. I did all of the things that you would expect a typical done that. A, a typical boy, yeah. as young man, to do. I was very physical, like growing up. I was also very, very, I want to say cerebral, but I used my mind a lot. I was very much thinking and writing and things like that. But again, it just kind of for me, it was just a matter of just changing what a man could be specifically a black man could be because when I looked at my I don't know what's what you call them classmates colleagues and whatnot and who happened to be white or who happened to be Southeast Asian and whatnot um they their kind of typical understanding of masculinity was very different to my black friends understanding of masculinity I remember growing up in school the guys that I hang around with who are predominantly black it was very much about rapping and football and if they were a bit edgy and a bit out there it was basketball and I think that was, that's <laughs> that, was the edge. that was the edge like, like, and that was the edge. um a few of us a few of us did swimming a few of us did that and um that level of, but you know did doing anything out of that kind of remit it was kind of seen and it was kind of seen as being unusual or unheard of or unlikely um and it wasn't until i started growing older i started seeing the poets coming out into this kind of in i don't know in the late 2010s 2011 possibly 12 right the poets the spoken word stuff the thing mm-hmm. clicking and all them things but i grew up and it was just like everybody was playing pro evo Everyone's playing FIFA, you know, and I just wasn't doing that because I had A-levels to get, you know what I mean? Like, I had to, I had, I had to get out of here, like, you guys want to stay there. Um, and that's the mentality I was having back then. So I think over time, it was just kind of really restructuring and redefining what it means to be a man, or it's not saying that you can't like those things, but it's just to say that you're not limited and restricted to sure. those things. Um, you can look outwards and think okay cool i like to do that i like to do that it doesn't make me any different to who i am it just makes it just means i'm expanding myself into other areas and into other parts of life so how do you define masculinity how do i define masculinity i guess if the question is what do i think about masculinity then i think it's a non-entity <laughs> how do i define masculinity i define it as a mask as a facade as a thing that people use to, as a, they use it to not explain the rest of something else. Does that make any sense? So they'll be like, oh, you're affecting my masculinity. My masculinity yeah. is being challenged. Yeah. We need masculine men, we need this stuff, but what do you actually mean? Am I challenging your sense of self? Am I challenging what you think about a situation? Am I challenging what you think you should be in a situation? Am I challenging your beliefs about X, Y, Z situation. Like, what does a masculine man do? Does a masculine man hunt and kill? Are we in, are we in BC, AD, whatever? 
like does a Muslim man look after his family? And in and in that sense, when he's looking after his family, what does he do to look after his family? Does he look after himself? Does he look after the planet? What does a masculine man do? I don't know, because even I don't understand what masculinity is. It doesn't make any sense. So, um, they say, but we use it so much, though. It's a word, like I said, we throw around exactly. We, time but, and time and time again. Yeah, we use it as a blanket. We, we use it as a blanket because the thing is about language. And I, because I studied linguistics at um, uni, linguistics in French, it was just so funny because the ambiguity of language, especially in the English language, is that there isn't a lot of things are up for interpretation. And because there's no specifics, or, um, you know, people are still debating what love is. Love is a word. Love is a word that's been around for like centuries and millennia. Yeah, the feeling has been around for centuries and millennia, and we still cannot describe what that is. So there is an ambiguity in particular areas of language. But I think that we're consistently trying to figure out how to define it, and that's why we consistently need to be in a process of redefining and restructuring, and then reconnecting that with what we are doing, in a sense. So, and then what does you know, how do you define masculinity? I just define it as just being, I guess, supposed to be esoteric about it, an energy. The same way I would define femininity as being an energy. And I think that if we are all holistic beings, then we will have those elements in those areas. You know, I mean, a man can still be nurturing, but still be protecting the same way a woman can be such, the same way a non-binary person can be such, the same way, you know? that you're going to protect what you care about. I like that, though. I think even that description you gave of not looking at the word, what's behind the word? Mm. I think a lot of times we stop at the word. I've said in the past, like, I remember way, way, way back in the day, um, when I stood some stuff, my wife wanted to annoy me. She was like, be a man. And, <laughs> and it, it used to be like, you used to get to me for a little, like, why are you saying that for this before we got married and stuff? Mm. And I was still young and mature. Why are you saying that for? What do you mean being a man? I'm a man, blah, blah, blah. Until the day I stopped, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what do you actually mean by being a man? What is it that I'm, I'm doing or not doing and everything else like that? And I had to effectively take the sting out of the word to actually disseminate that from me and no longer became an issue because it could be used against me. But a lot of times you don't go there. It's like you said, growing up, child and playground, all that kind of stuff, that whole energy that you bring, mm. it's like you're just supposed to appear in a particular way. And it's interesting, um, I was reading about Andrew Tate yesterday and schools. I'm sure you see that schools said something out about Andrew Tate mm. and they were and about protecting against him. I was like, wow, I've never seen that happen. Yeah. Where schools are actually intentionally talking about someone in the public yeah. like that. Yeah. That's very, very different. I've done conversations with schools and they have reached out to me to come and speak at schools. And, you know, because of Andrew Tate specifically, yeah. and I've come up in the conversation I've had with head teachers and assistant heads or whatever who's asking me to do the stuff, these assemblies and whatnot. And um, I'm tired of this man. I'm actually very tired of this. <laughs> He's giving me content. Like, what are you? I'm very tired of this man. But, you know. Yeah, what specifically about Andrew Tate do you... you no, but he's, he's someone that I would say he talks about the whole masculine energy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it's interesting that in a day and age that we live in now where we are starting to delve behind the words and explore vulnerability, feelings. I know you have um, your breakdown that you've got around shame, vulnerability, which we're going to delve into. 
but all those different elements are there. You then have this school of thought that is also growing back in popularity. And it seems to be young kids in particular are, are buying into it. And I was like, that's very rare. It does. It's backwards. It felt very backwards to me. Yeah. But yet it's still there. It's really prevalent. I, one thing about young kids, I do think that we don't give them as much credit as we should. I think that some of them are very wise. Some of them will look at it and be like, this man is chatting absolutely rubbish, right? Um, it's not necessarily something that they believe in or something that they understand to believe in. But there are some young people who are easily led. And I think this does just happen. I think it, I do think it does just happen at schools. Like these things happen. Growing up, it was like listening to particular areas of music who would then guide the way that you think as a young man. You think in a particular way, you, you guide the way that you think you should act and should do and whatnot. Especially when you're not necessarily mature enough to understand what is happening in the world and what the ramifications for certain things are, right? So that on that, that's something that I kind of really think is important to have and not to condescend these young people, but to kind of just feed them more information that they need because I don't think it's I think it's important to be like alright cool you're listening to what this guy's saying and and it's and this is why it's harmful and this is what and this is what he's saying and let's break it down let's have this conversation yeah. with these kids as for that topics coming up back up into the media or come back into popular conversation um the likes of Tate and Peterson and I want to add Piers Morgan into this just because just for jabs um it's like you know what i mean but i feel like there's this when we i guess in marketing i guess a lot of people talk about pain points mm. and we've had this conversation about pain points and how speaking to specific audiences and whatnot and um as soon as you there's certain words that men are accustomed to hearing and understanding things like violence things like threat things like dominance things like power things like Masculinity, masculine, strip like, um, did I say strip? Around that. Alpha male. Alpha male, alpha this, alpha that. And um, and there are certain words that a lot of men have not been able to identify with. I remember when I was in second year of uni, I had conversations with my male friends around the... And it just feels so stupid to have this conversation now in my mind, but alpha male, beta male, omega male, sigma male, yeah? Sigma. Sigma. That word. So, so, <laughs> so the alpha is the alpha. Yeah. The omega is no. The alpha is alpha. The beta is the second. Yeah. The omega is the bottom of the rung. The sigma is like scar from um from, from the Lion King. Like the okay. black sheep. Just, just literally, just be like by themselves. They will kill you if they need to, but they won't actually need to do that. If you just don't cross them. Sort of thing. If we're putting it into very simple terms, but. As I kind of like grew up and matured into this kind of person I am reading and just generally listening to people and trying to understand life in itself, none of that exists. None of that makes any sense. But for some people, it does. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it's important to them. Um, and when you start speaking to those pain points to specific men, to specific sectors of the community who don't feel like they are able to embrace their true manliness or their true masculinity, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, they then kind of lean into the messaging with there. Because there was a phrase that I think Tate or Peterson was using, but it was this idea that um, for a man to be taken seriously, he needs to be considered a threat. 
or he needs to be considered violent or whatnot. And I was like, what are you talking about? And the idea is that if you are a man and you look like you can defend yourself and you look like you can, you know, fight or whatnot, you'll be taken more seriously than somebody who does not look like they can or cannot defend themselves. And I remember thinking, all right, well, that sounds like the kind of Zen proverb of the whole, um, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, right? So learn to defend yourself. And yeah, yeah, but still be nurturing and able to just do the thing. But somebody tries to come into the garden and, 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 and trample on your <laughs> trample on your chrysanthemums, right? You, you, you can, you know, probably handle what you need to handle or, or defend yourself in a way. And I was thinking, what is the difference between this messaging and that messaging? One is mindful in that you can have the things you can nurture, you can look after, you can grow, you can do your stuff, but as long as, and also know how to defend yourself. The other one is fight, 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 or be killed. And I think that there are certain elements of language that are really connected to the pain points of men right now, specifically. And I think it's very, and, and, and that's why we're heading down this really slippery slope in this conversation around masculinity, quote unquote, because it's just like, well, what do we like? What what is it? What should we be listening to? And uh, yeah, men are no longer men, apparently. And but again, time is progressing, and you know, there are, the mines are closed. No one's going down there. Certain certain wars, you know, wars and certain things are like you know, what I mean, it's just not what it was in nine. We're not in nineteen eleven. Times are just very different. So the necessity of men, but again, it all just boils down to the devaluing of men and the devaluing of men's bodies and the disassociation that men are supposed to have with themselves. Because everything, most things that men have are external to them. But then you now see the the stats mm-hmm. around suicide and depression and every time something major like that's on like Twitch or whatever happens. Mm. You get thoughts and prayers. You get the oh my gosh, this is sad. But then on the flip side of that, general normal day to day, the commentary is just um, throw it is. It's just feeding so much of that, and that's why even um, when you're talking about some of the the breakdowns that you have, um, like let's go for the first one, for example, around shame, shame and men. <laughs> a word that generally speaking I'm going to say under an external you don't associate together because man doesn't want, want to talk about that but the reality is actually a lot of us feel shame and I want you to kind of just speak on that from, from your perspective as I know you've done research Alex goes deep in this stuff um, <laughs> but talk about that actually why it's important to be able to recognise that to actually be able to even say the words so yeah, it's important because through speaking specifically around men and those who identify as such, through life you are going you enact or encounter shame quite often as a man. There are certain milestones that you feel you should be hitting at particular points in life. There are certain um, successes that you think you should be having because you because this is what you've been told that you should have as a man. When it comes to even fatherhood, and you probably attest to some of this. I can't, but I'm just going from the observations of my friends who are fathers and the fathers around me. 
the particular levels of shame that come with connecting with your children and not necessarily being able to connect with them in particular ways mm-hmm. or not being able to give them the same things that your respected others or significant oh. others can give them. There's a shame that comes there. There's the shame whereby, you know, you're not, if you don't feel like you're strong, then again, using the Tate and Peterson kind of understanding that you, they're using shame to, to draw men in. But um, yeah, if you're not strong enough, if you don't have clear enough thoughts, if you can't, if you can't, you know, speak succinctly or directly or whatever, you can't get your point across in an elegant way. If you can't win certain things, they're all shaming ideas. If you can't do certain things that you feel that men should be able to do, I had this come with, we were having this debate um, just yesterday actually with my dad about, I'm kind of trying to help him understand about his generation's ideas of what they needed to know versus what my generation's ideas need to know. <laughs> Boy. And, um, and it's one of those things, and it's, and it's really interesting to me because he was, we had this conversation, he was like, well, if you are in a relationship and you're required to do something like put up a shelf and whatnot, and you don't know how to do that, would you not feel embarrassed about not being able to do that? And I said, no, because I don't know how to do it. I will go and learn how to do it and then do it. And then once you learn how to do something the first time, it might not be perfect, but at least the next time, you know, you, you know how to do it. I'm not going to use that screw. I'm not going to use that joint. I'm not going to use this or ever. Oh, I'm going to use that word next time. I'm going to do the X, Y, and Z. I'm going to measure it this way. I'm, you know what I mean? Or I'll come to you and you teach me how to do it. Like, what is the problem with being able to go out and then ask for support in something that you don't know? And that's where the shame principle comes in. <laughs> like, you start to think, well, I should know how to do this. I should know how to install a washing machine and fix it. I should know how to put up shelves. I should know how to build X, Y, and Z. I should know how to patch this stuff up. I should know how to paint my house. I should know how to, I should, I should, I should, I should, all of these shoulds. Mm -hmm. But ultimately I'm not a painter and decorator. So why should I know how to do this stuff? I do think it's important to know how to look after and look after your house. And I do think it's important to know how to preserve certain things in a home, for example. But the same way you look after your body, you know, like your health and say things like your car and your kids and your family and whatnot. And there's certain things you're going to get wrong the first time, but you have to just try and do it again. Or, you know, like if you need to, if you want to varnish something, but you don't want to pay someone to varnish it, then you learn how to varnish your banister, for example. I wouldn't necessarily say that's a masculinity, like that's something that men should do. But if you want to do it and you learn how to do it, does that make any sense? It does. So, yeah, I think, and then you feel ashamed when you can't. And I just get to myself, and I look it back and I'm like, why do I feel ashamed that I can't, that I don't know what sealer to get to put around the bathroom? Why do I feel ashamed about that? But I can go and find out if I want to. And then when I do find out, then I won't feel ashamed about it. So let me find out what if I want to cook and I don't know how to cook X, Y, and Z. I just open up the recipe book. <laughs> and I go and have a look at the stuff. Little things like this that kind of hold a lot of men back from doing it's, things. It's expectation. I mean, you look at desperation, for example. The expectation is you should know how to do X. It's right. society expects as a man you should know how to do paint, protect your house, blah, 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 blah. Yes, I know I love that stereotypical generalized, but that's where it comes from. And if a lot of us are 
that's what's handed down to us. That's what we run with. And that's what we then now becomes our own. Whether it's their hidden subtle or whatever, mm. when someone turns around and says, oh, you can't do that. Naturally speaking, yeah, you know, can't. But even to say the words, no, I can't, makes you feel, um, yeah. makes you feel shame. So unraveling that and letting go of that to be able to be like, actually, you know what? I'm not to do that. Never go line and check and learn. It's interesting that we live in a world now where we can actually have access to so much information to pick things up a lot quicker. That's very true. That's, so... that's, why, that's, one, that's, one, that's one caveat I always say. Like, as a generation, we can actually just do that. We can find ways, wiki how, that helps. <laughs> but do you think it's letting go of that, changing some of that shame is down solely to men? Or do you think, this is for example, so look at, if you're in a relationship, for example, the partner, the choice you make of partner makes a difference as to how you deal with your shame. Because mm-hmm. someone someone can use that and <laughs> use it against you and make you feel so much more worse than mm-hmm. ever you don't want to open up. Yeah, because of the, the way I look at shame, I kind of break it down into five steps. Um, when you look at your beliefs, mm-hmm. um, what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about the world? And what do you believe about the situation that you're in in regards to those kind of areas? Um, and if your belief is that you are not successful if you're alone or if you're not successful if you're not in a partnership with somebody. When you're in a partnership with somebody and they are shaming you, you're more likely going to stay in that situation because the belief you have of yourself is going to hold you there. So because you're doing all that, you're probably not going to, you're probably going to be so used to somebody being like, oh, you can't put shelves up. Uh, well, I need to go ask my brother, or I need to go hear about it. He can do X, Y, and Z. That's just one example of somebody who is using shame to coerce you into particular behaviors. And I think that one of the ideas for me is that because one of the last points is knowledge and self knowledge. And once you know yourself well enough, you know what you just, you kind of know what you can and can't do, and you know what is good for you and what is not good for you. And me personally, I wouldn't want to be with somebody like that does that. Because then what's the point? I can't then I can't do any I can't do anything like that because we're just gonna consistently be in problems <laughs> all the time. Because I know myself well enough. I'm and I know that and I can admit when I can't do something. So but if you're consistently badgering me about not knowing how to do something, then what's that gonna to do to my self esteem? And a lot of men have this issue of low self esteem because of that kind of battering down and in it but it does kind of represent itself in other ways it react there's a reaction that happens to that and i can react with you know arguments i can react with violence i can react with so many different avenues that come from that so when we start to look at kind of how we respond to this this element of shame and this area of shame then i mean you're in those partnerships it's about knowing what you are willing to tolerate that all starts with what we believe about ourselves so the beliefs are very important because if you believe that you are someone who can learn something and needs to um, expand themselves and kind of will always consistently get better if they consistently learn then you not knowing how to do something is that a problem because you're just like okay cool I don't feel bad about myself because I don't know how to learn. I don't know how to do that, sorry. But I can do it and learn. Because my own belief is that it doesn't, that doesn't challenge me as a person. So, yeah, it's all about our belief system very much. So, 
a lot of men have a very, very poor standard of beliefs for themselves. And it's a ever-going journey that we all have to go through. It comes to learning about ourselves and unraveling. Um, and before we go into the rest. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. I'm curious, what's your journey? What's that journey been like for you? You get to know and understand yourself, your character, develop that self-awareness. I was crump- I was crumpled on the floor in the corner. I had to do all of that work so that I could come and just out here just be be the man I am today. So I worked as a journalist for five years, and um, it was just after I had come back from teaching English abroad. And when I was teaching English, before I came back, I was in the Indian Ocean, and I was living life. It was fun. Like I had twelve hours. It was twelve hour weeks. Well. But 12 hour weeks, I was earning good money, good euros. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I mean, I was asking myself this for the past, you know, for two years at least. Why am I here? Why am I? Um, I had to come back. So, and I remember, um, yeah, it was great. Like, I, used, I was teaching English. It was like beaches every afternoon. And then they had a lot of time off because it was French. So they had a lot of strikes. And, um, there was that monsoon season or hurricane season, so and it's just raining heavily, like no one's going anywhere, just at home. And that was fine for me. Cause you still got paid. And I'd just be lying there watching T V shows in my air conditioned room. Like literally living my best and understanding that. But um and then doing private tutoring along that. But I remember sitting on my bed and I had like all these options in front of me and I was thinking to myself, like, what do I want to do? Because I knew that my time was coming up. Um, do I stay for another year? Do I do a master's in linguistics? Do I go into acting? Do I go into publishing or do I go into journalism? Which one do I do? And I think it's very, if we talk about like the kind of a multi-dimensional, multi, multi-verses, and um, there is one Alex who picked the masters. There is one Alex who picked acting. There is one Alex who picked publishing. There is one Alex who did the, you know what I mean? There is one of those people. Um, and then I think um, I got a text message from my dad and he basically was just like, I think it's time that you come home and do some real work, but here's an application for the Daily Mail to go in, you know, you get a scholarship as a two year, 18 month scholarship in collaboration with the Stephen Lawrence Foundation. Um, and they're looking for the way that this, this wording is so wild, but they're looking for ethnic minorities from you know, un, from underprivileged backgrounds who are the first to go to uni in their family, X, Y, and Z. I think I was like, I was like, under, like, and the thing is, it's so funny because we would, when we went into, like, me and my friend, who we happened to get the scholarship at the end, and um, we looked at it, and we were actually having this conversation, and we were just like, are you from an underprivileged background? And we are like, I'm like, no. Like, and she was like, I mean, I But it's very funny that that's what they think when they think of black people. They think because you're black, you're from an underprivileged background, and because you're the first to get to uni in your immediate family. My extended family, I was definitely not the first to get to uni, but 
because I was the first in my immediate family, then again, it's a problem. I remember one of the questions in the interview was like, oh, again, how did you get here? Like, and I had to explain this, this, what, this story of my grandparents coming from the Caribbean and landing here and doing this stuff. They did not come on a ship, they flew. And they landed at Gatwick or Heathrow or wherever. And they met family and friends and they drove to wherever they needed to be. You know what I mean? Like, so it was very interesting how their idea was this kind of windrush story. And my idea was, okay, my grandparents were of their generation, but they never took the windrush. So I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to add to this. Anyway, so, but that painted painted the picture for what my kind of experience was to be there. The token, the diversity hire, the person who would cover all of the problematic people of color stories and and just do that because it's a privilege for them to be here in this space and it was a lot of pressure for me um it was a lot of pressure for me because i know that i wanted to write as you know from the story i told you earlier so i, I read a lot wrote a lot i really wanted the reason i got into journalism is because i wanted to write full time and i wanted to make sure that i had the skills i needed to write well and um that came but at the expense of kind of like the style I was writing it wasn't necessarily the style I wanted to write in but things I did learn was how to write to a deadline how to be disciplined in your writing how to proofread for yourself how to copy edit and line edit figure out what you're doing but in doing that I was surrounded by people who chose not to understand me I say chose because it's a conscious thing that they actively went about and did and they alienated me I was and even where I was physically placed in certain areas and it just didn't feel like it wasn't a comforting environment to be in it wasn't good um and you know there were things that were said to me with regards to my background or my experience um so when when you think about a lot of these people went to either Eton or Cambridge, Oxford, or Ludgrove, or all these places, each, all of them are no editors from other papers. Their dads do up at golf sessions and a lot of things are traded on the golf course and all this different stuff. That's how they got here. And I got here through a diversity scheme. And it kind of, and it, again, it's about the beliefs thing. What does I do to you? It kind of, what does I do what is, how does that make me feel about myself doing this work? Am I good enough to be here? Is it something that I can excel in here in the same way that you can excel in? Are you better than me just by by default because your dad can put you into get you into rooms that my dad can't do for me? Like what does that all look like? So then the kind of so the beliefs kept like belittling me down but then that kind of trickled down to the work so when I was doing the art of my articles I was doing my best making sure that it was the best thing trouble double double triple checking making sure that everything was aligned still wasn't good enough in some areas I had work taken away from me I had work passed on to other I'd written articles and I had those articles passed on to other journalists who were of the same level as me I've had I've had articles put in there that I worked hard, forged good relationships with the sources and the PRs and all these different things, 
building a good like portfolio of stories doing all these different things only to come in the next day or see my name in print but it's shared with somebody else and i think in our in journalism in print when you see a name okay if it's the one person it's the one person that wrote it but if it's two people the second person that it's named after it anchored it no supported it and the first person anchored it so the first person kind of wrote most of the story and the second person got like extra quotes or whatever and they kind of got added onto the onto the, the piece and um it was a lot of that it was a lot of kind of you're not ready yet you're not quite ready yet oh it's not that good it's da -da -da -da. it's uh, yeah you've got you know you like if you like and then so that was that was news and then I went to entertainment and it was the same thing and I left that whole paper and I went to the metro and I did features and it was the exact same thing I, I interviewed UB40 I interviewed um like what's his name that now Rogers I interviewed all these people like I like I I I went out of my way to speak to really amazing people and write up these reviews for hotels and write up these reviews for well-being and all this different stuff did that on metro.co.uk as well but again the exact same things kept coming up so then what does this do it cripples how i feel about what i do and how i how i work there was never any constructive criticism there was never any this is what you're supposed to this is this all right this is there was never this is the gap in it and this is what you need to work on it was just blanket it's not good it's not quite there yet it's this that and the other and you know and it was it, so i mean i'm okay with feedback i'm okay with somebody saying this is not your this is not your best work i'm okay with somebody coming to me and saying that but tell me how it's not my best work and then i can kind of make tracks to the point where then i'm obsessing over an email to the point where I'm, I'm obsessing over a piece that should have been handed in two hours ago but I, i'm so scared and i'm so nervous that i can't even hand it in because then now this has challenged my whole identity as who i am as somebody who you know um anyway so i stressed out they sent me to glasgow because they said that again i wasn't necessarily wasn't really wasn't good enough in the london office And he sat down with me and actually said to me, said this to me, looked me dead in the face and said this. And I was like, because it was on a training day and I was with other graduates and I was like, so is anybody else going? And they were going because I was part of their scheme. That was part of us. That was what they were supposed to do. I had been a year ahead of them and I only went to the training because it was in kind of retrospect that me and the other person went to do it because we already had done other training. Um, so yeah, so we got sent to, we got sent to Glasgow and I didn't want to go. It was a good experience. I mean, it was nice being in a different city and stuff, but I didn't need to be there personally. Anyway, so I spent a lot of time depressed, really anxious, like feeling physically in my body that I didn't want to be in these places. Um, my 25th birthday was spent at the desk writing and it was that day I said, I'm never spending my birthday at work ever again and i haven't since um and it's just a kind of it was a it was like deep emotional issues that were going on and i broke down three times at work um to the point where i was getting gray hairs over the face my bones were starting to ache because i went to the doctors and they said that um 
I was kind of on track for rheumatoid arthritis if I don't check my stress levels and don't understand that. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, for one, so young, I'm dying. You know me and dramatic. So I was like, I'm actually dying. And my mom's like, Alex, please. Um, and so, yeah. So once I started, once I, um, I had to kind of just reevaluate what I wanted out of all of this. Um, and on the top of this, I was, I was running a pretty successful podcast at the time and I was trying to figure out, I was trying to write and I was just stressed in so many different areas. Friendships were, at the time, the friendships were fake and false and not really helpful for me, not really conducive. Family, I was, I was living back at home, so there was a lot of that. So I couldn't, didn't find peace anywhere. Didn't find peace in my friendships, couldn't find peace at work, couldn't find peace at home. It was just a consistent triangle of just stress. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. 2019, my contract ran out at the Metro and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to try and continue this because I can't be arguing with editors each day about my piece each day. I can't, I can't, I can't be doing it because, and it's not even that I'm arguing with them about the quality of it. They're trying to tell me that I didn't do something when I have tracked evidence that I did do something and they just didn't, they just chose not to see it, but they would never acknowledge that, that they, that they missed it. So now we're in an argument and now I'm the, I'm the, I'm the problem, you know? gaslighting and all of that different stuff and I was just like you know what cool I just don't want to have to be in this I don't want to have to to do that um yeah so I just stressed myself out stressed myself out to the point where my health was really challenged and that's when I left um and that's the year I got commissioned to write Time to Talk the book and um because I really started to think about because I I I had relaunched my own podcast at the time it was called What Matters um and then it went to 2.0, which was time to talk. And now we're on 3.0. But um, what's the front called? <laughs> the Mindful Man. There we podcast. go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and um, yeah, and I did time to talk, and I did that because I was really interested in how men were dealing with this. Because when I was on MetShow.co.uk, I started a, um, a column called Men Talk Health, and I and that's when I was really kind of getting into asking them asking men about breath work about their diabetes um i did a piece on penile cancer i did not even know you could get that but here we are penile cancer is something that happened it happens um 
multiple sclerosis, um, suicidality, all that different things. I had a, I was interviewing loads of men on all of this stuff, and there was a space for it until I acrimoniously left Metro.co.uk, but for various reasons, and um, and they just said they didn't want to continue doing it. And again, I found that there was a struggle. I kept I kept up against the friction. You know, the time I said. When I was on the paper, I said there needs to be men's pages. Why aren't there men's pages? Men do read the Metro as well. I've seen them on the tube reading it. So, but they only wanted to focus on women's stuff in there. Fine. If you look across the British media, like traditional papers, you won't find men's pages unless it's in the Telegraph. Telegraph have a specific audience, which is middle-aged men. And they have a men's editor and they have a men's... But you won't find it anywhere else. You won't find it in The Guardian. Guardian have a women's page. You won't find it in The Mail. The Mail is 65% women readers, so they're not going to have it in there. Uh, the Times, they don't have it. You know what I mean? So there were just loads of things. Unless you go to magazines, and magazines are kind of on their own kind of journey with the identity right now. But you don't find it. And I was trying to really push for that. I was really trying to get that. And it wasn't, it was being met with resistance, rejection, gaslighting, and all these other things. So it wasn't good for my health. And I decided that I had to leave. And that's how I ended up here, talking about all of this. I ended up training, I ended up writing the book, doing the podcast, training as a coach, becoming a hypnotherapist, training as a psychotherapist. Because I had to just, I had to understand what was happening with us as men and people generally for the work of everybody but if nobody else is going to do it there you go it's crazy Harry hearing you talking about how some of the I'm going to say the emotional stuff that you're going through physically manifested itself in, in symptoms I think that's something that a lot of times we don't think about I remember I read a stat years ago and they say things like 45 or 50 percent of you know the issues that NHS faces that manifest physically is down to a lot of mental and emotional stuff that people refuse to address until it becomes too much and then the symptoms come out different places so you then stepping into that being able to explore it for yourself feel it write about it talk about it um I guess helps even create that connection because you really know because you've been in it you felt it, you explored it. Um, and some of the other points that you've, as part of the overall five-step breakdown, you have vulnerability, um, sorry, you have courage, vulnerability, worth, worthiness, as you've written down, shame, and imperfection. Um, I'm going to skip vulnerability. Because <laughs> there is, I'm going to skip vulnerability. Um, and I actually want to go to worthiness, imperfection, and courage. Imperfection and worthiness in particular are not a lot of things that are talked about, um, but they are felt. So I wanted to, and that's why I, wanted, I really want to spend some time to really talk on those subjects and hear you talk on the subjects so that people can even hear your take, connect, relate to that, and start to even have, a lot of times you can go through stuff and you don't have a name or language for it. Until you hear someone say, like, oh, that's what it is. That's what I'm feeling. And then you can start to explore what you can do about it. Worthiness looks at and explores what you deserve and what you feel that you deserve. And for a lot of men, it feels like we have to earn 
certain things in order for us to feel valued to do certain things. Um, and I think worthiness then plays into it, plays a lot into how we see ourselves. And I think a lot of the things that I'm working with around worthiness is about how we can kind of maintain a sense of our own self-worth and going and going in about that. And I think if people would look at it and be like, well, men don't have a problem with worthiness or self-worth. They get paid more. They can ask for more money. They can, they have the confidence or the, the, the support of the system to be able to do that. But I don't necessarily think it's about material things because when we think about men in particular, everything is external to us. Everything is about what we can achieve, what we can do, what we can get from somewhere else. And I don't think it's that. I think it's about, are we worthy to ourselves? Do we feel like we deserve love? And you know, my book is about love, belonging and connection. Do we feel like we need those things? Do we feel like we are worthy as sons, brothers, fathers, cousins, uncles, mentors, to be able to experience that feeling of being valued, being appreciated, being accepted, and just abundance generally. Do we feel that's something that we can get? Do we feel that's something that we deserve and that we need? Outside of outside of the rest. I've had conversations, I keep having conversations with men about as I what do men what do you feel like men bring to the table? And a lot of men, a lot of people, specifically men, say men bring, uh, if you saw these buildings, the men did that, and men, the house, and providing and protecting and all this different stuff. And I was like, women can do that too, which is fine. And yes, typically men are in that area, typically, because that's kind of what they're because again, dissociated with the bodies, get made into robots, we just go and do stuff, you know, men are 10 times more likely to die at, die at work than women, all of this different stuff, and to die on the job, and to die, you know, men just be dying out here, I don't know if they need to be caring, anyway, um, but I was, I'm always like, okay, so, but what else, but okay, that's fine, all that's external stuff, earning more money, get into higher positions, doing all this stuff. What else do you bring to the table? What else are you bringing of yourself? Because if your whole perspective on what it means to be a man is that you're working 80 plus hours a week to build a life for yourself and your family, but you can't even benefit from the fruits of that labor because you're going to die early because of, as we've just discussed, the stress that comes with all of that manifests in the body. Men don't like to go to get themselves checked out or take care of their health anyway, because they don't feel like they should or deserve to do that or feel worthy enough to go and to do these things. And there's, a, there's an inherent fear of the health system. And if they don't appreciate to do that, and then they catch the prostate cancer too late, they catch the liver cancer too late, they catch the pancreatic cancer too late, they catch the lung, they catch the this, the that, and the other too late. When they die early. And they die early, and then what do they, and then they leave all of that stuff on the earth for their family and whatnot. All the stuff that they never got to see. And my granddad, my, mom, my maternal granddad, passed when he was 69. 
and at the time I was 14 and I thought, oh, 69 is old. But the older I'm getting, I'm like, 69 is not an old age considering my parents are turning 60. And I'm like, that's 10 years away from now. In a, yeah, in a sense, when you start to think about it and he passed away because he worked so hard, he, that he became ill. And I feel like it was a manifestation of all of the stress that kind of just built up in him and whatnot. There have been stories of men taking their lives and because they don't feel worthy enough to be here, but they have their family and life insurance is a big, it's a big thing in particular areas of the world, but here, um, and I think we've spoken off air about this, around life insurance for men and all this different stuff and dads, um, a lot of men are getting life insurance and then kind of dying by suicide where they can't say they've died by suicide for the life insurance policy. They have to make it look like it was an accident because they've already seen that they, they are more value to their family dead than alive. That's the point of worthiness that I'm looking at. Yes, there is the material, there is the money issue, and there is all of that stuff, but it's the way that men think about all of that. It's like, okay, cool, if I die, my family can get two to three million pounds or dollars to cover all of their expenses. They will benefit from me not being here. Let me do that. Let me let me take my life and they can actually have one, you know? Um, and, and then a lot of men feel like they, they have to go through all of that alone. They got to go through that whole mental process, that whole emotional um, decline, that all of that stuff by themselves. And then that's where we end up with these, with these men. And a lot of them, and I, feel, I do think that a lot of the reported suicides is not even the, the, the correct number. I think it's much higher than it is, and that's still bad. It's bad, but I feel like it's worse than it is because I feel like there are ways that people are trying are getting around it because there are because if they stay at suicide, certain families will not be able to survive or to be able to keep themselves afloat um, in the death. So when it comes to worthiness, that's kind of where I'm looking at it from because if once you once you get once you get through the shame part and we get up to worthiness now we have to really start kind of honing in as to kind of what that looks like for us and really kind of looking at what we accept what we're avoiding what we're acknowledging all of those kind of areas because worthiness is important as you're talking I'm thinking mum's like it's when you lean into that side of I need to provide 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 and it's a it's a never ending goal, and that's why even there are times when I know I've felt it when to take a break it's hard because you're like yeah but if I stop who am I who are if I stop doing this if I stop doing that if I stop providing that particular way if I stop even that job I know it's paying well but I know it's absolutely killing me like all that kind of stuff can all link into that that sense of a sense of worthiness. And when you start to really explore who am I, am I, remember I wrote an article time ago called Get to Worthy, but it was get to worthy for yourself. Not about 
your family, your friends, your kids, all that kind of stuff. For you, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you show up the way you show up? Why do you talk the way you talk? Is it influenced by it? like all this kind of stuff? And even a lot of times on a podcast, one of the strap lines is leading from the inside out, not from the outside in. And that really, really speaks to that. So I hope people are actually listening and taking this in what you're talking about worthiness because it's so important for people to really think about the actions that we take in our day-to-day lives and really do some work exploring that because that work is not easy <laughs> it is it is not easy at all that's why you need to lean into people like yourself to be able to work alongside of you to really get into 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 depth of ourselves to open it up yeah we have to we have to we have to be able to under, really understand our internal worlds a lot and this is why i went into hypnotherapy initially um, at first, I was thinking, what is because I trained as a health coach first and um, on my journey to seeking things. But I was like, on my journey, on my journey to seeking. But I recognized that because of what I went through physically from the stress, I wanted to know what happens to the body. And yeah, I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not going in with the certain things, but it's, it's enough to understand the nervous system and what happens when the nervous system shuts down and particular part, your body works as a system and everything is connected and it needs to work in a way that helps it optimize itself in the best possible way. And um, so in order to do that, I had to look at the health the health coaching to figure out how the heart works, how the lungs work, what the nervous system is like, what the hormonal gland, you know, what hormones do, what happens in the brain, spine. And then I went and and then I, when I went to do the coaching module and I figured out that the therapeutic relationship between coach and client and what that looks like, I, I began to look deeper into therapy as a, as a way to do this. But, it led me to hypnotherapy as an entry point. And hypnotherapy works very, very specifically with this, um, with, with the health, with the health of with the physical health of people, tapping into the body itself um, and certain areas of it can be very useful in that way. And I think that when I was doing a lot of the training, I am, um, I mean, one of my teachers and when I, even one of my colleagues at the time, he was like, oh, you have a very good sense of your internal world. Like you can get lost in your stuff. Like you're not afraid to go where it's dark and, you know, figure out what is happening there with you. And I was like, yeah, I've had, because I'm, I'm introverted and I've always kind of spoken, spent a lot of time by myself and I've always had to really kind of assess where, where my heart is at at any given point. And there was a period of time where I was really disconnected from myself and I had to kind of find a way to reconnect myself. Um, utilizing that to kind of understand and forget and really speak to men and yeah, everybody, but speak to men about how we can, how we can really understand our inner voice and our inner child and our, and that inner space was super important to me, which is why I'm kind of stepping into the psychotherapy with the hypnotherapy, but also the mindfulness side of stuff because because it's it's about really understanding our internal voice but also being present enough to understand what's happening around knowing how we feel when we get riled up knowing what the buttons are for us but what happens when those buttons are pushed how far 
yeah how far do you let the trigger points take you you know if somebody says something to you is do you then generalize the belief as all people think this or do you go and seek more information to figure out what that is? it's like what you said about your wife saying ah oh, be a man right it's, and then you're like and then you sat down and thought hmm what do you mean by that that is then you stepping into mindfulness to be like okay so what do you actually mean by that because then now you've got more information and then now you can actually make an assessed judgment on that challenging because we're so, as I keep saying men are so external everything is about how other people view you but these are the conversations that you don't have we don't talk about we don't talk about everything else we talk about football you talk about gaming you talk about girl you talk about gossip you talk about everything else but to have a real talk conversation is is really really hard but it's also really fundamental and actually quite life-giving um and that's why it's so it's so important and um and this this conversation can go so long, but again, it's life giving. But I mean, and so I've got, I mean, this is why I'm starting with with shame, um, shame and trauma with men, because men don't talk about a lot of stuff. And if we were to sit down and really rewind and look through the minutiae details of a man's life, we'll find that there is a lot of stuff that has been either said to him, done to him, done by him, done to others, that actually has impacted the way he feels about himself. And then that then impacts how he treats others. And then that impacts how the, the rest of stuff, the rest of the thing. So how can men begin to be able to, in a sense, connect with themselves, work with someone like you, lean into working with someone like you, because even that initial step requires like courage and all of that kind of stuff. They're listening to all of this, listen to this conversation, they can relate to some of those symptoms and things that you've you've shared so far. They're like, Yeah, but I'm not sure. I don't know. That hesitation is there. Like how can we begin to break some of those boundaries down so people can actually do something about it and, and reach out and get the help that they need. Well, first question I would always ask myself is how how long how long do you think you can last? Ask yourself that. Because then you still, you know, people are saying, oh, I don't know, I, I'm, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not. How long do you think you can last? We know the suicide rates. We know, look how long or how long your, your, your dad lasted. Look at how long you've, kind of held all of this stuff to yourself look at your relationships are they are they where you want them to be look at your career is it where you want it to be ask yourself these questions not everything has to be for you that's absolutely fine but ask yourself the questions and you'll end up and whatever they end up being make the decision but other than that creating workshops I'm creating workshops for, for men to come to to be able to have these conversations in spaces with other men. And um, I'm very interested in high-performing men at the moment because 
there has to be a very particular personality type to get to the very specific positions and want to do certain things. Uh, whether that be founders, CEOs, lawyers and whatnot. But I'm also interested in just the everyday, the everyday person, everyday man who is trying to get through each, every single day, like, you know, in a way that you best possibly can. Um, because as much as whatever our status is, we are all that we are all going through very similar things. And I think that's what I'm trying to achieve here. So yeah, look out for the, the workshops. workshops, look out for that. But I, I would say, I would look say, out where, where can we find you'll out? You'll find that all <laughs> everywhere. You'll find it on my website, alexholmes.co. You find it through the podcast, even if you've got the best entry point, the best entry point would be the podcast because then you would get the, you would hear me speak, you would hear the content, you would hear the, the topics and um, that's where you're going to hear all the updates about where the, where the workshops are going to be at, what it's going to look like, um, what that looks like for you. I would say so the Mindful Man podcast is where you need to be. So yeah. And I guess my last question would be, how do you define leadership? How do I define leadership? I define leadership as, I define leadership as a wholehearted approach to a common goal. And I think that it's not about managing others. It's not about necessarily managing yourself, but it's about leading and guiding and mentoring and community it's about it's about being wholehearted in your approach to to the goals that you need whether that means you're leading a family whether that means you're leading yourself whether that means you're leading a team i think the approach is always the same wholeheartedness thank you thank you for thank you for just being real I think a lot of times it's very easy to get into these conversations and it's so high level that you can sometimes feel so far removed that you can't relate to it or it's so philosophical you're spending your time looking up a dictionary trying to understand the word but there are times when you just need someone just to be real to lean in with their experiences backed up with knowledge, the science, the data, all that kind of stuff. It's all there, it's all relevant. Eric's sort of completely trained up. But you just need someone you can relate to. And that's something that you've done today. It's something that I've learned so much and all the people listening would have done. And when people reach out, people connect. All the information about Alex that he's already shared will be in the show notes. You can definitely get involved, work with him, buy the book. Um, and in the next video show, we'll have Alex back to carry this conversation because there was so much more we could have gone down today, but we just kind of run out of time. But thank you very much for today. Really appreciate it. Nah, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's Everyday Leadership. We'll see you next week. While well, you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out so i have two halves of who alice was like at nine years old because my mom died when i was nine um but if i go from slightly before that 
I think I was a slightly precocious nine year, uh, eight, seven, eight year old because my mum comes from the lineage of really, uh, really amazing women. So we discovered recently that my great great aunt uh, was a explorer, and she was, I think, the first white woman to climb Kilimanjaro. So, and my granny was like the first woman to become a permanent undersecretary of the treasury. So I had these like really high-powered women, but they were all part of my life. So we'd go to my granny's house and I'd be playing like Boggle or Scrabble with uh, Cambridge professors. <laughs>